0: Hi, everyone. This is Olga Mack, Building the Future of Contracts from Home, and today I'm here with James. Uh, James, please introduce yourself. Hi, uh,
1: my name is uh, James Strange. Um, I serve as an associate general counsel at a uh, nonprofit based out of Southern California that um, specializes in um, energy advisory services and you know, renewable energy and electric vehicle implementation.
0: Tell me a little bit more about your past before you got to this nonprofit and in, in your role. Uh, what were your other adventures in law?
1: It was kind of a, a weird path. Um, I actually, uh, <clears throat> my undergrad degree was in art with a focus in photography. Um, you know, I graduated in 2008 right at the uh, beginning of, you know, that that terrible economic downturn we had. So there wasn't a whole lot of jobs available. Um, and I ended up at a solar company, um, a very large one and it turned out that our territory at this at this company was uh, the largest in the country and it had the most authorities having jurisdiction within its territory meaning that you know we we had something like 70 cities towns and and other municipalities within our territory in this in this company and so my job at the solar company was to source things needed for solar installations and it quickly became a very difficult job. Um, every a- AHJ required different things for these solar systems, and sometimes they're very difficult to source. And you know, and over time, I became curious, and you know, it, it turned out that a lot of the reason f- for this utter disparity between you know how we install solar systems across these territories was, you know, largely policy related. Um, sometimes it was benign. reasons for certain requirements sometimes it was less than benign and um when i when i began to get interested in sort of the reasons and and the factors that that influence you know a tiny piece of energy policy that that's as benign as you know what kind of panels go where on what roof using what you know the answer i was given by the company was there are people working on that don't worry about it and uh i was bemoaning this to my supervisor one day and he said well you know if you're really interested in stuff like that you should just go to law school and uh, you know, that, that kind of worked on me over, over a while. And so I you know, started studying for the LSAT at night and then took the test and then one day uh, applied to law school. And that's sort of how the journey began. Wow,
0: um, so you went to law school interested in energy.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so energy policy and, uh, and, and administrative law was actually so, sort of what motivated me to, to go to law school. Um, and then I picked, um, of all the applications, the University of Hawaii. Uh, and the reason for that was because at the time, Hawaii was like at the center of this renewable energy argument that was happening regarding, uh, you know, behind the meter energy resources, you know, solar panels on people's homes. You know, uh, by the time I went to law school, you know, um, parts of Hawaii were reaching, at you know, penetrations of at least, you know, 30% of, of solar systems on homes versus overall, and the utility was fighting back very aggressively uh, on this, you know, making all sorts of arguments that um, it was dangerous for the grid, that that it was a resource that they couldn't use, and that that things needed to be calmed down before they could move forward. And of course, the renewable energy industry, especially the behind the meter solar installers were pushing back hard as well. And uh, everyone was facing both legal and technological challenges that had yet to sort of be addressed uh, at, in 2014. And uh, so it was a very fun place to go to law school and be interested in energy policy.
0: Yeah, I, um, going to law school in Hawaii is probably a good place to go uh, for, for many reasons. Uh, I used to work with a partner who uh, chose a Ninth Circuit clerkship located in Hawaii for, uh, for many reasons, mm. uh, including because he liked the judge, but also I think he liked the location
1: yeah, the Ninth Circuit um, clerkship uh, in Hawaii is is one of the most coveted um, positions. They get a lot of applications.
0: Let's just go <laughs> <on that. laughs> I, I can only imagine why it's all it's all about the policy, I'm sure.
1: yeah, there, it was a point of some consternation with us at the law school in Hawaii because, you know, you we would apply for positions like that, and then you would have all of these, you know, top-of-the-class Harvard graduates, you know, applying for the Ninth Circuit in Hawaii. <laughs> but um, it's okay. Every now and again, one of us squeezed in.
0: That's true. I absolutely cannot go wrong with, with Hawaii. I, you know, I, I also will say the same thing about California, uh, where I'm located. But yes, Hawaii is up there. It's definitely a fantastic place, place to study or do anything, really. Um, so did you, when you were in law school, did you actually um, how it you know, how was your ability to actually study uh, and acquire uh, energy law related skills? Uh, was it every, everything you planned or not quite?
1: Yeah, actually, it went it went better than I could have uh, hoped for. Um, I was very lucky in that year. They hired a professor to um, actually run sort of it, it wasn't an official clinic, but but they hired a professor to specialize in energy law. And um, me and this professor and a couple other students actually started what we called the energy justice program, and so um, we we were very involved in the community as as much as we could be. So while we were there, you know, we we hosted some community events where um, we were discussing, um, you know, the role of the utility and how the role of the utility might change, and we were there to get feedback from the community uh, at the time everything was going on there in 2014, 2015, there was an outside energy company called Nextera that was very interested in, in purchasing Hawaii Electric Company. And it was a very big deal for the state because the state of Hawaii essentially only has one major investor owned utility in its, in its territory. And so we went into the community to solicit feedback on not only the, the merger, they were calling it, but um, you know what, what the community felt about energy and energy policy. And then uh, we also went to the Island of Molokai, you know, gave a presentation to a community board um, and and held a workshop about, you know, what it might look like for the Island of Molokai to, you know, use a little bit of eminent domain power through the county and become their own utility. Um, Also heavily, you know, involved in, in, what the legislator was doing and and studying the laws and policies that were taking place in Hawaii and abroad. So, um, you know, I I thought it was a great experience. It gave me a lot of opportunity to um, not only, you know, sit in the library and do mountains of research, but actually get out into the community and hear from, from people you know, what expectations they had for their energy and what they would like to see moving forward.
0: I, I've never had conversations with people about their expectation about energy. That, that must have been, that's a very interesting way uh, of describing it. I guess, what was the most surprising thing when you had conversations with folks in the community about their expectations of energy?
1: I, I think the thing that surprised me most is that, you know, like you just said, not a lot of people have given thought to it, right? They turn on the light switch and the light comes on. And it's very, very rare that you turn on the light switch and nothing happens. And so people don't think about it very much on a day-to-day basis. But when you bring them into a room and you give them like a five minute presentation on where electricity comes from, how it's regulated and, and what do you think we should do with, you know our energy resource mix and where should power plants go? Should they go in your backyard? You know, where should, how many solar panels should we have versus how many natural gas plants, et cetera. Um, It surprised me. People very, very quickly will tell you they think electricity is an essential commodity and that it should be treated democratically and that the community should have a voice and not only how it operates, but how it's owned. And and, you know, it should be fair. And so, you know, to, to to sum it up, people people tend to look at it like we would the police force or firemen. Um, you know, it's something that should be provided at an affordable rate for everybody. Is is the short answer.
0: Very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I have not been part of conversations like this. It sounds like um, it, it, like it should be part of a larger uh, community discourse um, and decision making uh, that is much more inclusive uh, because it is to some extent a fundamental right. and we sort of at part of thepo we have seen that um, internet access to internet during crisis um, has been uh, and it, which is kind of utility to you know uh, an example of one, is a great predictor of how uh, a person or a company or organization has been able to weather storm. Um, in the, if if you had stable internet, your chances of being connected and productive during crisis have been exponentially higher than for those people who haven't, and unfortunately, that is often correlated with income and and uh, and other things. Um, and 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 I I've heard a number of conversations about kind of access to internet um, as something that is kind of a basic right because it really allows you to continue living a normal
1: life. I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, if, if you are to, to look at, um, you know, a stable, high functioning, complicated economy, you know, I think the internet has become an essential part of that and, and access to the internet um, therefore becomes a a very, very um, important issue. But of course, without electricity, there's no internet, (laughs) there's no lights. There's no way for people to actually participate in, you know, um, what we, what we would consider a developed world economy, right? So, um, yeah, th- those are all very, very important questions. And uh, unfortunately, the way that electricity is historically regulated in the US, um, it doesn't really lend itself to community level conversations, right? Um,
0: so let's talk about, um, I'm actually very nervous to this. Uh, I know a lot of, about a lot of things, but energy I actually don't know much about uh, and definitely don't know much about energy law. Um, and I'm sure that's a combination of all kinds of laws um, and regulation and, and, and administrative decisions. But maybe at a high level, explain to someone who is generally intelligent but maybe um, energy, electricity, electricity, um, not as sophisticated, um, how how energy and electricity are regulated.
1: Sure. So um, yeah, like you said, it's it's this is sort of a black hole. I'll try to keep it high level and I. Uh, apologize to any of your listeners. If <clears throat> I oversimplify things or miss misspeak a little bit here in trying to, to weave a, a simple narrative, but essentially, um, you know, at the turn of the century, um, there was, a, a milieu of, of industrial actors out there creating electric grids, right? They were like putting up a dam or building a generation station and they were just running wires everywhere. And it quickly became apparent that, um, some central planning needed to be involved. Um, But, you know, the argument from industry was, you know, it's very expensive and time-consuming to invest all of this infrastructure and then have no guaranteed rate of return. So um, the sort of business relationship that began to develop, um, you know, between 1910 and 1920s was certain corporations would be handed a franchise um, to operate in a certain area. And um, they would be, Guaranteed a certain rate of return, and in exchange, they would be regulated by by the state. And so, um, what sort of popped up across the United States was each state formed their public utilities commission or an equivalent that granted uh, monopolies to to certain corporations uh, in certain territories. So, for some states that were small, you might have one utility who was tasked with you know the electricity delivery in the entire state. Uh, other much bigger states like California or you know, New York, there, there was a mixture of utilities who were kind of given pieces of the state to operate in. Um, and, you know, that, that basically worked with some major tweaks along the way around FDR. Um, you know, for 80, 90 years, it went for a long time. And these uh, IOUs were very entrenched. And um, but then, you know, things started to change a little bit uh, in the 70s uh, with the oil embargo and you know it turned out that um, our electric infrastructure was extremely reliant you know on foreign oil imports and coal and uh there was a lot of conversation that started to take place then about you know how vulnerable are we and so some some changes started to come along at the federal level um regarding you know how we regulate the utilities and and you know what resource mix we we want them to have you know how um variable is our grid how you know, strong is it in terms of like being able to um, lose a certain resource. And, um, and then all of a sudden you, you know, you have the other technologies cropping up like wind and solar and um, which were sort of, you know, challenging this, this top down ownership model of, of vertically integrated utilities, vertically integrated, meaning the, the utility would, you know, procure the resource, generate the electricity, transmit the electricity and also deliver it to your home. Um, that that sort of business model has been, you know, heavily challenged throughout the United States. I'd argue since like the '90s. But um, again, we're there's lots of uh, branches on this tree I just planted in front of you, so I'm not sure which one you want to go down.
0: <laughs> no, no, that that's a really good picture, and, and 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 I guess maybe what would be helpful, you know, clearly there's a model that is in place. It's very ingrained. Um, you know, it also has challenges. It has been challenged. I guess maybe let's talk about the challenges. Uh, what challenges does you know, this create for the market, for the community, for the regulators, for the future? Uh, lots, lots of you know, uh, aspects I uh, uh, would love to hear about.
1: Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I guess uh, you know, one thing, the, the, the white elephant in the room, I guess, in and, and discussing any sort of energy policy at the state level or the community level, is that um, electricity is transmitted, and it's a it's a commodity. So as soon as it leaves state lines, it's subject to federal government regulation. Right, and so um, you know, I mentioned FDR earlier uh, around the time of the Great Depression, um, all of. Or, or a great many of the electric utilities across the United States were um, owned by holding companies. <coughs> and um, these holding companies were often not in the States that they own the utilities in. And when the great depression happened, many of these holding companies experienced financial difficulties. A lot of them went under service rates, their ability to um, safely manage their grids was greatly compromised. And um, they were arguing that they, they shouldn't be subject to state regulations. The federal government stepped in with the Federal Power Act and said, you know, holding companies were limited to to owning just a few utilities, and they had to be in one state. And um, a sort of equilibrium happened there between um, what the states were allowed to regulate with their utilities, which was essentially mostly prices, planning, infrastructure, and what the federal government was allowed to regulate, which was, you know, the transmission of electricity across state borders. Um, That evolved over time, and now uh, a lot of our electric grids are in these sort of huge transmission operator organizations. And uh, they also set prices at like a federal, you know, interstate level with auctions. I feel like I got a little lost here in the details.
0: (laughs) No, no, those are really great details. And and, and it makes sense because it's a very complicated area of law and policy and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and because, uh, and there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Um, Yeah, (laughs) You know, uh, not only across time, but also, between the states and communities and federal government, uh, you know, you, you end up with, with a combination of all kinds of things. Um, and so if you were to identify maybe the top two or three challenges now, now that we've had this for a little while and different people try to patch it up and, and, and address and do the best they can under the circumstances, what maybe are the top two, three challenges that we face uh, today?
1: Understood. Okay, I think that's a great way to frame this. So I think the first is is as states adopt more um, environmentally friendly policies. Uh, for example, many states have implemented a you know a renewable portfolio standard of 100 percent renewable energy in their state by usually 2045, 2050 is the bar that they set. And you know as those states reach to be you know net zero in their emissions, um, how do we make sure that that the grid is able to provide electric service you know um cheaply and reliably while mainly sourcing its electricity from sources like wind and and solar and geothermal um, hydro things of that nature um i think the second great issue is as technology evolves as as solar becomes cheaper as as batteries become cheaper and and businesses and homeowners want to you know Adopt these energy solutions for themselves because it results in cheaper electricity. How do we um, Allow that to happen, you know, give people the freedom and choice to adopt, you know, energy to their liking uh, While making sure that we retain the integrity of the local grids, you know, and um, I think I think the third issue there is You know, uh, what impact will these changes that states are making have on the larger electric grid on a national level? And and to what, you know, degree should the federal government have uh, any say on on pricing controls and resource adequacy concerns as we transition to renewable energy?
0: Interesting. So, renewable energy really um, adds uh, adds something to this mixture um, and completely changes the conversation. And it sounds like in the future. Um, it 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 may change everything.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the the, the most states um, are reliant for their electricity on, on resources uh, such as coal or natural gas. Um, that that sort of makes the baseline, um, you know, adequacy reliance that that runs through the United States electric grid, as it's a combination of all these 50 grids in these states. Um, most rely, including California, uh, for most for major parts of the year on, on natural gas. So you know what what is it going to look like as as we attempt to fade out this resource and adopt more wind, more solar. You know it's going to take uh, technologies such as batteries to sort of take the place of a lot of these resources, because um, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, sometimes the wind is not always blowing and sometimes the sun is not always shining. So you know how do we capture this electricity? Store it and make sure it's available for times when we need it most. Um, And that's also a very complicated conversation. So we can tease that out a little bit or we can go in a different direction.
0: Yeah, well, actually, let's do that. And then before we do that, maybe um, just so we are definitionally on the same page, let's define renewable energy uh, so we know exactly what it is. And then, yes, let's talk about options. Um, Sure.
1: So, so, you know, of course you're an attorney. So I think you hit on a very uh, salient point there. And of course, renewable energy is a little bit different uh, depending on <clears throat> how your jurisdiction decides to define it. Um, but, but for me, renewable energy means, um, we have not, um, burned any oil or coal or released any carbon into the, into the atmosphere and in, in obtaining that, that energy resource. Right. So, um, uh, without parsing semantics, essentially, you know, solar would be renewable energy, wind, um, hydro, hydroelectric, um, perhaps geothermal in some instances. You know, th- these are all resources that once they're in place and begin to generate electricity, um, there is no emitting CO2 or other gases in that equation of the equation of the energy capture.
0: OK, and so uh, for, for the renewable energy to, to fit in this mix and really be part of our future, um, uh, a much uh, easier to breathe future, um, what needs to happen?
1: Uh, well, there, I think there needs to be changes towards you know, how we plan for resource adequacy and um, you know, to make sure that there's continued pressure and focus on solving the issues that we have in front of us, you know, for example, uh, California during, um, you know, January to March and from March to, uh, essentially, you know, before the summer begins. So let's say from, from March through may California actually has, um, a vast amount of le- extra electricity on its grid. Um, you know, 50% of the elect- of the grid's electric mix is, is coming from solar and wind and, uh, because those tend to be temperate months in California. No one's blasting their AC, no one's running their heater. Um, all of that electricity is just sort of wasted. Um, some of it gets stored. Some of it gets transmitted out of the state to people who need it. But a lot of it is curtailed, meaning they just you know, shut off the system because uh, there's so much electricity available that there are negative price signals and they it doesn't help anybody. So um, as we start to to transmit transition more towards renewable energies we're going to have to get very serious about you know how we capture that electricity where it's stored um, and how it's activated you know because right now uh, a lot of the grid um, I can speak to California is, is um, when we have emergency you know times like everyone's running their ACs because they're in a heat wave that electricity is usually met with with gas peaker plants, which are these sort of small specialized plants that are very expensive to operate, that that kick on at a moment's notice virtually and start delivering extra power to the grid. And uh, simultaneously, those are also, uh, you know, the most emissions heavy, you know, solutions to providing like extra electricity. So, you know, I think we're gonna have to be um, very careful about, about the price signals that we set and you know how we plan our infrastructure moving forward.
0: So is technology there to capture you know uh, that um, excess, that surplus? Um, I guess that that's a big you know the, our ability to solve this problem has to you know be met with uh, our capabilities <laughs> technologically speaking. So is that something that sort of we are getting close to or is that something that is actually entirely available and, you know, to some extent commoditized?
1: Understood. Um, I think that the technology is there. Um, The technology actually is almost always there. We got to the moon in nine years or whatever it was. I I think um, that the second part of that question is how much is it going to cost, right? Um, and, And that really is the sort of, the, the The fulcrum that that weighs the scale here. So um, you know it's it, it's been said, okay. I don't have the source in front of me, that you know the United States is going to need about you know one and a half trillion dollars over the next twenty years to update and modernize its grid because parts of it are falling apart in places. And so if we're going to be making that heavy investment, you know what what should the investment mean? Where should it go? What should we invest uh, in our resources? And um, in terms of you know, price signals, uh, most of the IOUs, <clears throat> and Hawaii is proving this to be very true, but California uh, IOUs are, when I say IOU, I mean investor-owned utilities, are procuring contracts where they're, they're putting in solar farms and, uh, and batteries to sort of replace the, what the gas peaker plants were doing. And um, they're doing it at prices that are similar. And so as as you encourage and adopt more of these um, solutions, the prices are going to come down. And we know the prices are coming down with solar, with battery technology. Um, And then there are also novel solutions that people are looking into. So there are less known things like flywheels, which are sort of a a form of energy storage. There's um, pumped hydro, which people are exploring. There's also a very novel company that um, is storing energy with automated systems that build large towers and then when you need electricity, they drop the blocks and it generates electricity as as the blocks fall. So I think there's definitely going to be some, uh, you know, growing pains and there's going to be some sort of like, you know, contraction and flexing as we discover which technological solutions work best for the grid that we have and the grid that we want. Um, But I would argue that the technology is there.
0: Uh, very interesting. Um, I, I love, I mean, I, I, I would find often that technology may be there, there's sort of concerns about price. There's also people don't like changing behavior and they don't like changing um, institutions and change sometimes takes a while, especially in law policy um, and communities that may or may not be educated. So uh, those are kind of the the, the reasons for not uh, embracing the 21st century often quickly enough. So, can we truly achieve the sort of net zero carb- carbon electric grid? Is it, is it possible? Is it possible in our lifetime? Um, what do you think?
1: I think it's possible in our lifetime. Sometimes I get wide eyes when I say, when I say that. But um, you know, people tend to forget that you know, the electric grid wasn't just here one day. Um, it didn't just come into being. And, and unfortunately, you know, we weren't given the benefit if we're less than 100 years old of, of seeing its, its development and evolution in our society over the past hundred years. There was a lot of law and policy and and price signals that were encouraged, you know, during that time to make sure that the grid developed in a certain way and relied on a certain amount of resources, certain kind of resources. So as we look to the future, as we need to update and modernize our grid, as we um, understand the deleterious effects of emitting CO2 for our energy and our transportation, um, you know, it's, it's sort of incumbent on us to make sure that we can do it, um, but to more directly answer your question, um, you know, for instance, in California, our baseline load, meaning the amount of electricity that that needs to be available at the, on the grid at all times to sort of like meet California's base energy needs, a lot of that is met by by natural gas, and so we're we're going to have to um, figure out. How to sort of like replace these base load requirements that California needs with renewable options. You know, for example, you know, we have a goal in California of, of 100% RPS by 2045, I believe. Uh, someone can slap me if it's actually 2050. <laughs> and, you know, renewable portfolio standards uh, come with their own definitions and requirements. I think we can get mostly there. I think it's very possible. I you know, the state towards the end might explore certain things like carbon sequestration to kind of meet their net zero goals. Um, there might be some sort of, you know, um, carbon energy exchange, you know, like we participate in now with with other states and uh, nations. Um, we might be admitting a little bit of gas still at the end, but I think if we do it right, we can get almost there.
0: I love it. Let's talk about your journey. You started in photography, found yourself accidentally at a solar company, now knee deep in this policy and and and, and, and nonprofit uh, and, and and really in the midst of this conversation of a uh, future of energy um, what makes you get up in the morning and still want to be part of it um
1: you know really it's the the overarching challenge of climate change you know uh, globally about about one-third of of our carbon emissions are due to electric generation Um, you know and i think we would all agree that electricity is sort of now woven into the fabric of our society and and economy it's not something we can just just dump overboard and try over again Um, and so you know if we want to make a real impact on minimizing the amount of co2 gets into the air we have to um, you know explore renewable energy options that that's not easy because we're dealing with, you know, hundred year old infrastructures, hundred year old, you know, um, entrenched company systems and, 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 you know, regulatory oversight. And so, you know, it's, it's not something that's, um, you know where you can just sort of implement market signals and then sit back and wait for the, for the evolution of, of the resource and of the, of the infrastructure. You know, it takes very targeted sometimes and very active um, policymaking to, to get these favorable changes moving forward, to, to get the momentum. And I think we have a lot of great momentum now. I mean, um, you know, despite changes that have taken place at the federal level, most states have taken charge and, and are actively trying, even in what would be considered very conservative jurisdictions that are maybe um, more skeptical of, of, you know, phasing out fossil fuels as a resource mix. Uh, we, we see these these states taking like a, you know, definite policy initiatives to not only uh, transition towards more renewable energy, but also adopt more uh, electric infrastructure uh, for vehicles. So um, I'm I'm positive. But the work isn't done. It's not going to be done for a very long time. And you can't can't take a step back from it, really. So I've been very encouraged by by what I've seen since I've gotten involved in this policy environment in 2014. but, you know, it's, it's not easy and there are going to be hiccups.
0: So, so that's what motivates me. I love it. This is um, the work that has to be done. That's what makes you get up in the morning. I, I think that's such a good answer. Um, it's, it's always fun to be part of building and creating. Um, and it's, um, it's probably the most satisfying place to be because you're not going to inherit the system. You're sort of part of building it. Um, and you have a little bit of, I guess, control as to where that may, may go, or at least input. Um, so, what if you're, you know, a young lawyer, or actually maybe uh, a lawyer who, in you know, in the midst of career, um, who wants to uh, either have an impact, or maybe even pivot um, into this uh, clearly very important for our future, for future of humanity. Area of of law and and, and, and frankly energy generally, where, where do I start if I have this interest?
1: Hmm. That's difficult because it is because it is very niche, and there are um, I, w- I would consider limited avenues. Um, but if you're motivated and this is really your passion, there's also a lot of opportunity. Um, you know, I guess if you were a law student, you know, um, I would recommend you 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 know, dig into environmental and administrative law courses. You know, most of the energy uh, world is regulated by, by state or federal agencies. Um, And, you know, the, the interplay between federal and and state energy law, you know, on a commerce clause level is, is very, very important to how energy is, is created and planned in the United States. And then likewise, the, the way that energy is regulated, the, the, relationship that state agencies have with the uh, private owned companies that generate and transmit electricity in the state, that relationship is also very administrative law heavy. So being good at that, really understanding you know um, the arbitrary and capricious standards <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that exist out there. Um, I think it's one step. I think the second step would be you know um, try and work at, at a utility maybe. Um, If you are nearby your state's Public Utilities Commission, you know, um, intern there. Lots of Public Utility Commissions actually have internships during law school for for interested grads. And, um, you know, having a JD is is very valuable for a lot of the work that Utilities Commissions do, even if you're not doing strict lawyer work. Um, So, you know, that's a great way to get get invested. And um, also, you know, the nonprofit NGO world is also a great place to start. While they might not be doing direct energy policy and regulation, a lot of the things that they do will touch that. And um, you'll have an opportunity to to get good at it and dig your fingers in.
0: I love it. Those are great advice. Um, I guess maybe I want to, I'm getting close to finishing this conversation. Um, I think what really left a big impression on me is sort of the lack of education in the community. and the importance of energy for the community, and and maybe how to to close that gap, um, and what we as lawyers or law students or policymakers, regulators, uh, elected officials, what can be done um, to you know educate the community and help us all make decisions that are sustainable and help us all thrive.
1: Got it. Yeah, that's a hard one, and I think you know. Energy planning and and energy you know resources for a lot of us are esoteric because it's handled at the state level. You know that there's typically a state public utilities commission that sort of um, holds proceedings and, and engages the utilities in these very like rigid quasi judicial you know um, environments and it's it's difficult for the public at large to penetrate. Um, that's changing a little bit. But I think what's really important is that you make sure you vote for people who are going to, you know, support your policy, you know, energy initiatives and, and who have energy on the mind. You know, I'd recommend you when you research your elected officials, you know, make sure that they have a, a energy environment, you know, place on their page. Um, of course, you know, uh, who the governor is, is, is very important because the governor appoints public utilities commissions commissioners. Yeah. Um, and they, they serve it as pleasure in many respects. So... That that will have an effect on energy policy in the state. Um, But what's also important to remember is that, um, unlike, you know, California, the governor appoints commissioners, but in some states, the commissioners are voted in. You know, and so, for instance, in Arizona, this election, uh, I believe there are several commissioners up for a vote. So what those commissioners say they're going to do and what they believe in and what they want to try and do is very important. And, and as a voter, you can have a direct impact. On, on Arizona's energy development moving forward. I think that's where you start at a high level. On the next tier, there are a lot of laws and regulations in place in most states to prevent people from getting too uh, liberal with how they generate electricity and transmit it. A lot of that's for safety reasons, but but a lot of that was also implemented to um, sort of cement the utilities monopoly. So um, I think if if you want communities to begin to become more prescient about their energy choices and actually, you know, move forward and democratizing, you know, energy in, in their area, um, there's actually gonna have to be some legal barriers that are removed to to allow that to happen in a safe and interesting way.
0: James, I learned so much in the last thirty, forty minute conversation. Um, that, um, that I haven't learned in quite a while. So thank you for that, for that, those uh, insights and lessons and sharing your journey. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I and I hope to do it again.
1: Yeah, no problem. I hope it wasn't, uh, hope you're not just being polite.
0: Uh, oh, I'm not polite. If you know me well enough, I am as direct as they come. So no, I, it was, it was fantastic. It was very educational. And I'm certain that my listeners, uh, and viewers will, will, will find that, uh, Likewise. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it.